the shock shattered me. It was like someone had crept up behind me and hit me full force with a baseball bat. I saw the pastor drinking coffee. Myra, a 26-year-old woman who was a former devout Mormon, began expressing her pain and confusion with another Christian woman who was counseling this new believer who had still lots of leftover baggage from her previous religious commitment to Mormonism. You see, Myra's two worlds had collided. She was going through what some might even consider religious culture shock. That violent conflict one encounters when you leave one religion and enter into another religion. It's often painful. It's, it can be disabling. It could even be a threatening experience for many. As a dedicated Latter-day Saint, Myra began to say with her counselor, I believe in the word of wisdom, and I strictly live by it. That's the man-made rules that the Mormon so-called church adds to their so-called Bible. They believe that no coffee, no tea, no alcohol, no tobacco, not even Coca-Cola can be consumed. My body was a temple of the Holy Spirit. I cannot stain it. Well, after spending some more time untangling the various questions she had and working through her whole portfolio of emotions, Myra's counselor began to hit a nerve. She hit a nerve on a key issue as she experienced life now as a Christian in a Christian church. Myra's counselor graciously and clearly identified one area of experience, of her experience, that was brought to the surface as a new revelation to her culture shock. Myra responded, culture shock? What does that have to do with church? Like many others, Myra had never thought of religion as having a culture. But the Mormon church, Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Unification church, even Christian churches, all have cultures. Each religion has its own world and unique ways of doing things, like a nation, a tribe, or an ethnic community. Each has its pattern ways of thinking and feeling, its shared symbols, meanings, values, ideas, standards, and bonds. Each establishes roles, forms of self-images, which transforms lifestyles and attitudes and fosters certain behaviors and expectations in its members. Christianity also produces some of these same elements. The major difference is, however, that it derives its cultural mores its mentality and values, and its bonds, not from self-appointed leaders, but from God's revealed word. The counselor then began to offer comfort, but also instruction to Myra on why this little pastor-drinking coffee experience turned into a nightmare for her. She said, quote, everything we're culturally conditioned to believe and respond to is, is neatly arranged in filing cabinets in our minds. Each drawer holds folders on various subjects. These folders contain experiences, beliefs, and our learned response to those beliefs. For example, when we see dark clouds outside, our mind pulls out the file folder for weather, and it tells us, that rain is coming. Our response then is to grab an umbrella. Every situation in life draws on these files, the counselor told Myra. They constitute our picture of reality, the way we think things ought to be done, and the way we should respond to them. You see, Myra, when you saw the pastor drinking coffee, you went into shock over the difference between what your file said on God's laws and you said, I should respond in that way. You didn't know how to respond because you had no file folder that would validate a pastor drinking coffee. Shocked by this contradiction, it was like the signals in your brain were short-circuiting. They were freaking out. Naturally, you asked yourself, if he were called of God, why isn't he keeping God's law? 
Myra's counselor continued on and finally arrived to a mountaintop conclusion with Myra that she had to come to grips with. Even as a new Christian, the balled-up yarn of her previous religious experience began to unravel before her eyes. The counselor then said to Myra, having your Mormon files neatly organized in your mind made you feel secure. Now your security was threatened. You felt as if someone had yanked all your efficiently arranged files and thrown them on the floor in a mess beyond rearranging. Your mind was at a complete loss. You had nothing from which to draw. Desperate to put everything back in as it was, you couldn't. You were crying because you felt powerless. All your beliefs about God and the years of faithful abstinence from drinks like coffee were now, for the first time, called into question. Brothers and sisters, When you consider all the theological and philosophical and sociological factors that someone encounters when they leave one religion and enter into another religion, it tells us a story. It tells us a story that undoing what took years to build into one's belief system is no small task. You see, beloved, our behavior, our passions, what we put our pride and joy in, what we place our identity and hope in, who we listen to, and what we place our deepest confidence in is telling a story. We are all, with our lives, broadcasting what our true beliefs are. But what if our beliefs, our view of worship to God, though sincere, was sincerely wrong. What if our beliefs did not actually square up with God's revealed truth, God's standard of what is right and wrong, God's value system that ultimately matters? Well, if you have your Bibles, Open them to the New Testament letter of Philippians. This morning, if you're visiting with us for the first time, you have parachuted in the middle of a sermon series in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. Kind of catch some of us up to speed on what on earth has been going on, or you've just had a long weekend. The author, the Apostle Paul, around A.D. 60, so a long time ago, writes to a body of Christians all the way to a Roman colony in Macedonia called Philippi. Uh, Paul's in prison, most likely in Rome, and Paul knew these men and women for quite some time because on his second missionary journey, he had planted this church about 10 years prior. So you can flip back to chapter 1. I'm going to give you the 30,000-foot Delta Airlines summary of where we're at. If you like American over Delta, I'm not going to fight over that. Here we go. Up until this point, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, we read about and learned about Paul's partnership in the gospel with this church. Then in chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, we read about Paul's imprisonment for preaching the gospel and his attitude towards life and death. In chapter 1, verse 27 to chapter 2, verse 11, he then exhorted them to center their lives around the gospel, looking to Jesus as their primary example of humility And then in chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, we saw some practical applications of how to pour yourself out for Christ, how to be a light in the midst of a dark world. And then in chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, where we left off last week, we learned about two examples, two godly examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus. These were dear men who had either come from the Philippian church or were closely acquainted with it. And Paul said, hey, listen, Respect these men, honor these men, receive these men, because they are faithful examples to look up to. Which leads us to where we're at this morning in Philippians chapter 3. Follow with me, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This morning, I have three points for us to consider. If you're taking notes, point number one, be discerning of who you listen to for your spiritual growth. Be discerning of who you listen to for your spiritual growth. That's verses one to three. Number two, be certain that your confidence is rooted in the right place. Be certain that your confidence is rooted in the right place. That's verses four to six. And then number three, be ready for Christ to rearrange your value system. Be ready for Christ to rearrange your value system. That's verses seven to 11. And friends, I pray that our passage this morning would show us the surpassing worth of knowing Christ compared to knowing anything or anyone else in your life. So here in this section, Paul begins to get very personal with his pastoral care for these believers. In verses 1 to 2, he, he starts off showing that he really does care for these dear saints. And how does he do that? Well, he starts off by reminding them, reminding them of something apparently they already knew, and then he warns them of what they should be on guard towards in the future. So in verse 1, Paul begins addressing them. Did you see that there? My brothers. If you're new to church and it's weird that you hear people call each other brothers, but we don't look anything alike, it's not that we're trying to do some strange backwoods thing there. No, when we call each other brothers and sisters, we are affirming one another as being a part of the same spiritual family. And so that's what Paul's doing to these Christians. He's calling them, you're my brothers. You're in the same kingdom. You're in the same father's house. And then he calls on them to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, this is something different than say, hey, get out of your bad mood, get in a good mood. <laughs> D don't, don't have a rainy day, have a sunshine day. That's not what he's talking about. He's not trying to say deny your emotions, deny any pain in your life. But when he says to rejoice in the Lord, he's saying, Philippians, remember you belong to the Lord. Your eternal destiny is secure in the Lord. So be comforted, my brothers. Be comforted, my sisters, by who God is and his promise to work through your life and his promise to walk all things together for good in your life, that is, to make you more like his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what Romans 8, 28 and 29 also promises. You see, joy is not an unfamiliar theme in this letter. It's actually mentioned, if you're ever into doing word studies, it's mentioned at least or even more than 12 times in Philippians. But here in chapter 3, Paul begins to kind of turn the corner. He's beginning to take a right on the street, if you will, and he begins laying out a whole different new set of instructions and new ministry updates 
he wants them to know about his life. And he does that first by addressing these believers and encouraging them, it says, to take joy. To take joy in being called a follower of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of it because the Lord is leading you and the Lord loves you. But Paul also says to rejoice in the Lord because the Lord was caring for this church through Paul's care for this church. And Paul shows his care like any good pastor would do by reminding them, or it says there, write the same things to them. Now, you might be asking, what exactly is he referring to? Well, he might be referring to things he talked about in chapter 1, or what it means to suffer for Christ when you're bold for the gospel. It could be things that he talked about by word of mouth many years ago from when he first met them and different interactions they had had over a decade, but we're actually not very sure. But regardless of whatever it was he was reminding them about, he says he did this in verse 1 so that they might be safe. Repetition is one of the ways we can remember things, right? Repetition is one of the ways we can remember things, right? Repetition is one of the ways we can remember things, right? You see, any good teacher, any good parent, any good coach knows the art of leadership and taking what you know and your people need to know is repeating it over and over and over again. Repetition or repeating oneself is one of the most common ways of effective teaching. Let me give you a little secret in a pastor's tool belt. In case you didn't know, pastors are generally not that smart. We're just called to be wise. One way God uses pastors in your life is not by pastors inventing new things or trying to stay on the most cutting-edge things to keep people interested. You know, ingenuity is not a qualification for a pastor in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But pastors, all we do is simply say what God said and repeat it to God's people. Sometimes we say it in different ways or we emphasize it at different angles, but that's all I'm doing 52 weeks out of the year until the Lord calls me home. Just saying what God said and repeating it over and over again. But see, Paul here doesn't sound like a disgruntled or burned out pastor. He says, I'm writing to you again. I'm writing the same things to you, and it's no trouble to me, and it's actually good for you. It's no sweat off my back because it's ultimately for your well-being, which I take lots of joy in. But what dangers does Paul have in mind that the Philippians could be facing in which Paul is concerned about? I mean, how could their safety, how could their spiritual security with Christ potentially be threatened? Well, look with me now in verses 2 to 3. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We've been living here now for about 10 months in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and I've enjoyed walks outside. Ryan and Lindsay have probably seen me from time to time, my neighbors. One of the reasons I like going for walks is I can stare at the stars in the sky, which I missed for four and a half years living in a city with smog and clouds. But one of the places I like to walk is Terrain Lake. It's one of my favorite places to go. It's generally peaceful. However, I've had to learn quite quickly of the abrupt alerts from passing cyclists. I guess from my days in D.C., walking down East Capitol Street, bikes weren't as popular on the sidewalks as maybe they are here in Fort Smith. So to be quite honest, on more than one occasion, I've been quite jarred a few times. It's not uncommon for me to be kind of in a daze and staring off into space, and then all of a sudden hear a cyclist say, you left, left. And my reaction at first was, okay. (laughs) And after a disgruntled biker that I had to apologize to, I realized 
He was going on the left. I needed to move to the right. You see, beloved, what I needed to learn quite quickly is if I want to keep myself from getting smacked from behind or thrown into the four-foot lake of terrain, lake, I need to be alert and pay attention to my surroundings. Well, here in verse 2, Paul alerts the Philippians. He says, left, by warning them that there are religious people who are characterized by teaching something that contradicts God's truth. He describes these people in fairly bold terms. Did you notice the first thing he says? He calls them dogs. He didn't call them poodles. He didn't call them bulldogs. But he calls them dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Uh, These descriptions reveal two things about these deceitful teachers. Number one, they are despicable and should not be listened to. They are despicable and should not be listened to. He calls them dogs. This was a derogatory term that Jews used to use in a negative light to refer to Gentiles who were spiritually unclean people. But it was even more slanderous. Some of them used it to refer to Gentiles as second-class human beings like spiritual riffraff that were separated from God. Well, Jesus knew about this word. He actually used it in his own ministry. He calls the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, 27 as an object lesson of saving faith to rebuke the unbelieving Jews. But then Jesus also uses this term where I think Paul got this from. In Matthew chapter 7, he warns us against wasting time teaching spiritual truths to people who no longer have ears to hear it. He says in Matthew 7, verse 6, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So first off, these people that Paul's describing, who he's warning, he's given that left to these dear saints, he's saying they are despicable and they should not be listened to. But then he digs down a little deeper. Why? Why does Paul use such strong language? He actually uses a word they would have used on them. The second thing about these teachers is they are deceitful disciples. They are deceitful disciples. In other words, these are not the pastor's the Sunday school teachers, the small group leaders, or missionaries you want to support. He calls them evildoers. Your translation might say evil workers. And he says right next to it, those who mutilate the flesh. Now, he's not talking about penitentiary convicts who were part of gangs and they were thieves and drug dealers. However, these are people who are known as spreading a false gospel that ensnare people, it traps people, it tells people lies to believing a false hope. In other words, they were speaking a message that had an anti-Christian doctrine within it, but slapping on a label, calling it Christian. Well, what was that doctrine? Well, Paul alludes to it when he speaks about the concept of circumcision, okay? I don't need to go into detail of what that is, but it's a fairly common surgical procedure that's been around a long time. But here, Paul alludes to it to teach them or to warn them about what these false teachers were teaching about circumcision. Under the Old Covenant, God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless the nations through him and his descendants after him. And this solemn and everlasting covenant that God would make with a people would have a temporary physical sign attached to it. This sign would mark off the people of God from the rest of the world. It served almost like what we might consider today a visible passport. You know, a passport when you're traveling signifies who you are and what nation you are from. And so when God's people in the Old Testament were faithful and obedient to circumcise every male son on the eighth day, it would be a sign of the covenant, that you belonged to God's covenant people. You can read more about that in Genesis chapter 17 in your own time. However, this physical sign 
that would be preserved and upheld as an act of obedience for the nation of Israel was ultimately there to point to an inward sign, an inward spiritual reality of a circumcised heart, a heart that we've been singing about this morning that's been changed and transformed by the Spirit of the living God, a heart that would be knit to love God, a heart wired to love God, a heart that would want to truly know God, a heart that would want and delight and increasingly pursue God. This was prophesied about in the Old Testament, right? Passages like Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, and then it was fulfilled when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, was raised from the dead, and the Spirit would be given to all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in Him. All of us who would forsake all confidence in our own good works, in our own merits, and place our faith in Jesus. And when you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible says He will circumcise your heart. He will give you spiritual, open heart surgery. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you are singing these truths from the heart, if you are believing this from the heart, if you are praying from the heart, if your life is giving evidence that you do, at least increasingly, even in the most faint ways, want to love the God of the Bible, it's because God has circumcised your heart. You might have been born in the United States, you might have been born in Arkansas or Oklahoma, and that might be in some sense true. You're a citizen of these places, but if you are a Christian, fundamentally, your passport reads from your heart to heaven that now you belong to Christ. Take out that heavenly dog tag, take out that heavenly passport, it reads in Christ. You belong now a part of that holy nation, God's people. In Romans 2, Verses 28 and 29 is a great cross-reference for you to consider. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. A circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, what had happened was that there were these itinerant Jewish preachers. They were known as Judaizers. You can read more about them in Acts chapter 15 and through a whole book of Galatians. You might say, well, what were they teaching? What was one of the first false doctrines, heresies, that began to penetrate the lives of early churches? Well, it was what I call the Jesus plus doctrine. Jesus plus some forms of Judaism that was required for salvation. In other words, Jesus plus the old covenant sign of circumcision of the flesh. In other words, these teachers were trying to double dip. Let me take a little bit of Jesus in the new covenant, take a little bit of Judaism in the old covenant, and let's slap on some man-made traditions and call it, thus saith the Lord. These false teachers could agree with you to some degree about Jesus, but in the same message, reject that gospel of grace by requiring an old covenant sign to be adhered to. You see, Paul was warning them, if you try to reach back to the old covenant, you are now turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. He says in Galatians 1, verses 6 to 9, how serious this matter was. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and wanted to to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, it's obvious that Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are one religious group 
I would even say Seventh-day Adventists to a large degree, will pull this kind of false gospel message. They will believe some things about Jesus that you and I do, but add things to it. To get a little more contemporary and contextual, here in Fort Smith, Arkansas, I have been made known there are traces of the Hebrew Roots Movement. You can read more about them online or come ask me at the door. But they do very similar theological gymnastics. They take a little Jesus and say, well, we need to go back to our Jewishness because Jesus was a Jew and begin to observe feast and ceremonial laws. Our modern day context is not a new thing. It's an old heresy putting on new clothes. If you meet someone that's a part of this Hebrew roots movement, reread the book of Galatians, reread the book of Hebrews, find out what it means that Christ fulfilled all things said about him. And what does that mean now for those who are in Christ? Let me at least say this. If you're going to defend anything in your life, make sure the defending of the truth of the gospel is in the top five. God's glory is on the line. People's souls are on the line. The unity of Christ's church is on the line. That's something worth giving your time and energy to. Consider reading books like What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert or The Gospel According to Paul by John MacArthur. Or make it a point this fall for you and a Christian friend to sit across one another And if you're too embarrassed to do this publicly, you can do it in your own home and say, hey, sister, share with me the gospel in three minutes or less, and then I'll do it too. And then ask the question humbly, hey, are there any areas of the gospel that I can improve on? Are there any areas of the gospel that I'm saying are a little off? Brothers and sisters, that's how we grow. In joining Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, one of the things we ask everyone coming into membership is, what is the gospel? It's not the SATs. It's not the MCATs. But as a pastor, I am trying to sift through the the wool of the sheep to find out if there's any unhealth that they've been taught in the past and find out, do they know the gospel of Jesus Christ? And beloved, I would even say this, if you're a woman and you desire to study the Bible deeper this fall and into next spring, join the women's Bible study being offered in November. I think that class will be used to help equip you better to know what the true gospel is so our church can sniff out counterfeits when we hear them. You might be asking, Blake, I think you've assumed a lot. How many in here actually know what the gospel is? It's a good question. If you're here today and you've heard that word gospel used a lot in the service, but you really just, I'm not sure what that is, let me explain it to you. The good news That's what the gospel means, is that God has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. God has provided for us by meeting our greatest need, forgiveness of sins, a righteous standing with God, adoption as sons and daughters into his kingdom, everlasting joy, and reconciliation with our God forever. But you can't receive those good promises until you first understand the bad news. The bad news is that God is good and we are not. God is perfect and we are not merely imperfect. We are stained from the inside out. We are what the Bible says, an enemy of God. You see, you never will come to the foot of the cross until you first come to the end of yourself. You have to recognize, I have to recognize, we all have to recognize we have sinned against our maker. And the Bible says our sins separate us from God. And there's no amount of good works we can do to climb up the ladder to heaven because every time you climb up three steps, you fall right back down. God's standard is too high, it's too holy, and we need God to come down. We need God to come down the ladder. We need God to take us up from the ground, change us from the inside out, empower us to come to him, and he does it, and he does it out of his grace. Jesus Christ, God's son, came down to this earth, lived a perfect life, a life of obedience and trust, always taught the truth of God, even when it was not popular, and it led him to die on a tree, a crucifixion, a criminal's death. A punishment reserved for us was placed on him, and on the cross, he 
completed. He fulfilled. He satisfied God's righteous judgment. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. And today, if you turn from your sins, renounce your reliance on your own good deeds before God, and put your faith in Christ alone, you will be saved. That's the good news. That's what we are about as a church. That's what I do as a preacher. That's what every follower of Jesus should spend the rest of their life studying and being amazed by. Now, getting the message right is crucial, isn't it? This is something that obviously concerned and alarmed Paul in his day. This was something that even angered Paul. So when you get to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians 5 verse 12, look it up this afternoon. Write it down right now and speak about it with your loved ones and say, wow, I can't believe that's in the Bible. Yeah, he was pretty ticked off when people taught a different gospel. You see, Paul found it absolutely necessary to defend the truth because Christ was his treasure. Paul then contrasted these false teachers with the true worshipers of God, those who loved God, those who knew God, those who had a circumcised heart, the people that the Philippians and the people that Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church should listen to. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Brothers and sisters, be discerning of who you listen to for your spiritual growth. Be discerning of who you listen to for your spiritual growth. A problem that I see over and over again in the church today is that churches are full of activity, but they're about an inch deep. We don't need more programs to do. We need more of God, and you get more of God when you get in this book. Brothers and sisters, May we be a church. Pray that CCBC not get distracted by keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with other things in life. Help us stay focused. Pray that we stay focused on what matters. But what do I mean by spiritual discernment? Well, I mean this. The ability to know the difference between the true gospel and a false one. The ability to know the difference between a faithful pastor and a charlatan. The ability to think long over biblical doctrine and explain it to others instead of spouting off cliches that have no biblical warrant. I would say one of the most common spiritual pandemics in the Western church today is the lack of discernment of what a healthy church actually is. Think about it. We spend hours researching the best deal on a new car. We spend hours looking for the best price on a new house. We spend hours online through social media and games. We spend hours escaping from reality. We spend hours studying who our favorite politician or sports teams are. But beloved, how much time have we spent thinking about Christ's church? How much effort do we exert to help a church become more faithful to Scripture? How much time in prayer do we devote to praying for other churches that they would prosper before it's too late? Because, beloved, there are expiration dates that Jesus has on a church's door when they are no longer faithful to the gospel. J.C. Ryle once said, take away the gospel from a church and that church is not worth preserving a well without water, a scabbard without a sword, a steam engine without a fire, a ship without compass and rudder, a watch without a mainspring, a stuffed carcass without life. All these are useless things. But there is nothing so useless as a church without the gospel. Moms and dads among us, I know you have big plans and big dreams for your kids. I want good things for my kids too. But make sure the most important thing you want for your children is that they know God, that they know Jesus, and that you, while they are still under your roof, 
lead them to be a part of a gospel-preaching church where they can learn to follow Jesus. If you're visiting with us today and you're checking us out, you're visiting or you have friends that may, let me give you a friendly challenge from the pastor here. What exactly are you looking for in a church? What is it that you're hoping to check out? What is it that compels you to stay at one church and leave another? Let me encourage you, find out first and foremost what that church believes and ask the pastor, ask the members how they intend to obey what they said they believe. Because what you believe is manifested by the fruit you are bearing. The most important thing you should look for in a church is not a choir. The most important thing you should look for in a church is not what it offers my children. The most important thing you should look for in a church is not what small groups you can join. The most important thing you should find out in a church is find out what they believe. So here's a good checklist. Make sure they are clear on what the gospel is, what a Christian is, what our sin problem is, what a local church is, that repentance and faith are necessary for salvation the lordship of Jesus Christ, and the authority of the Bible. Let me give you another challenge, okay? This is when I'm equipping you, our own members and those who are visiting with us. Listen to about five or ten sermons from that pulpit and ask yourself the question, does the preacher use the Bible to fit his own agenda or does the Bible set the agenda for what the pastor is preaching? That is a planet-size difference. Listen carefully. Beloved, one of the unspoken about, kind of sadly compromised ways that Christians have relaxed their convictions as we've become a fast-paced and technology-obsessed society. We have lost the art of reflective thinking. The Bible calls that meditation. Unreflective thinking is like unreflective eating. Unreflective thinking is like unreflective eating. If you don't think about what you're eating, you'll either become overweight or malnourished. And the same goes for our spiritual life, right? Unreflective thinking about the church you go to, about the sermons you listen to, uh, the books you're reading, the friends you have, all have huge implications for your spiritual growth. Well, Paul told him to look out, right? Three times. He gave them the left, left, left. Be vigilant. Watch out. And so should we. Be discerning of who you listen to for spiritual growth. Number two, be certain that your confidence is rooted in the right place. Paul goes on now to talk about these false teachers. And then he begins to turn the mirror on himself. He reminds the Philippians of who he used to be a man that was self-righteous and self-deceived, and how God had taken this very prideful man and made him to a mighty vessel used for God. He says right there in verse 4, For though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has confidence for co- reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Really here in verses 4 to 6, Paul alludes to the very things that these false teachers were boasting about in their ministries. And here Paul is saying basically this, hey Philippians, if there's anyone who put their faith and confidence in a false gospel, I was the worst of them. I made these false teachers look somewhat innocent. In just a few verses, Paul says he put his confidence, listen to this, in the outward sign of physical circumcision. He had the old covenant passport to signify he was a part of God's people. You might say he had the membership card to God's country club, so he thought. Like many of these false teachers and many people today that grow up in church, He put his security heavily on external appearances. But Paul also said something that I've heard in many Baptist churches. He was also a cradle 
Jew. He was born a Jew. His ancestors were Jews. He had all the cultural norms deeply ingrained in his blood. If his daddy bought Ancestry.com for Christmas for him, it would have said, of Israel, Jew and Jew. It would have been Jew and Jew all the way through. But Paul also boasted in the fact that he was passionate about obeying what he believed so much that the Jews respected him and Christians feared him. You see, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a religious expert of the law that could spout off the Torah as easily as you and I can, the Pledge of Allegiance. Paul was proud of how many scriptures he could quote. He was proud at how well he could obey them when people were watching. And so Paul and his cronies would stick their chest out. Their egos would be inflated because they thought they were a big deal, a big shot, a somebody. So much that he and his fellow Pharisees began to adopt man's traditions so highly that it actually drowned out what God's word even said. You can read more about that in Mark chapter 7. But Paul was also passionate in defending his Judaism. In fact, he was so passionate that he was defending, protecting, and even violently persecuting anyone who stood in his way. We read in passages like Acts chapter 8 that Paul, formerly known as Saul, actually stood in approval of the first Christian martyr holding their coats and giving an affirmation to seeing Stephen killed. Paul was once a very confident man. But the question we need to ask is, confident in what? Himself. Himself. Whereas verse 4 says, he had confidence in the flesh. Our sin problem, beloved, runs very deep, doesn't it? It touches our core. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish any more than you do. It runs in our veins. When we're born into this world, our innate disposition is to think that this world and everyone who lives in it exists for us. We think our spouses exist for us. We think our neighbors exist for us. Our churches exist for us. And really, if, if we were to be honest, though we would never say it, our heart really says, I want what I can gain from others. That's how I think about my days and my weeks. What can I get from someone? This is how twisted we are. This is how we distort how God made us upright. The atrocity of our selfish, prideful sin nature is that oftentimes we act as if we are the main actor in the play and God is the audience. For Paul, his hidden idol was religious respect. This would be equivalent today to someone using the church as a career stepping stone in their life. Join a well-known church in the community who has lots of money and notoriety and use the church as a means for personal gain. I've even heard it, networking politicizing one's popularity amongst influential leaders in a church all to be viewed as respectable in the community. Another idol that was embedded in Paul's life was a warped, ego-driven nationalism. This would be equivalent today to many in the South that are entrenched with a faulty understanding of God and country leaning on historical data that says our country was founded on biblical principles, but wrongly equating that America is somehow now God's chosen nation. Beloved, that is an anti-gospel belief. That is an anti-gospel nationalism and a bad interpretation of sacred scripture. Many people today have wrongly concluded that thinking that America is the new Israel 
that somehow God is in heaven and the loudspeakers are on to God bless America and the angelic host is waving American flags. Beloved, that is blasphemous. Beloved, you can love your country. You can pray for God to have mercy on your country. You can thank God that he let you live in this country. But remember, the gospel is for all nations, not any one nation under God. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations? Isn't Jesus the Lord of every person from every nation? Isn't Jesus the hope of all the ends of the earth? Isn't God's love manifested through Jesus extended to the whole world? John 3, 16 does not say, for God so loved America. Keep in mind, it's been 300 years since we've been here. Beloved, in this 2020 election season, please heed this warning. You can give a politician your vote, but you should only give Jesus your heart. You can give a politician your vote, but only give Jesus your heart. And regardless if you're angry and jaded or you're excited and encouraged by whatever the outcome is in November, I pray that we as a church and other churches in our community and around our country will be more confident that Jesus is Lord and that his church will be built. So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day what happens a month from now because Jesus is going to still reign as king and Jesus is going to build his church. So stay focused on that non-negotiable fact. Paul was a self-righteous, egotistical, nationalistic fanatic that thought he was on the path to heaven in reality, he was on the path to hell. Hell is paved with good intentions. Paul thought he was offering worship to God when in fact he was opposing God by teaching a false gospel and persecuting the church that Jesus died for. If Paul would have had a ministry website, it would have said this, save my Judaism. When the fact of the matter was, Paul needed to be saved himself. So how did this happen? How did Paul go on from being self-deceived and opposing God's will to being justified before God and doing his will? Well, something powerful had to happen. Something that normally would take years of unraveling for a counselor to do, like Myra's heart who came out of Mormonism. But for Paul... It happened on a dusty road on Damascus, which leads to our final point, point number three, be ready for Christ to rearrange your value system. Be ready for Christ to rearrange your value system. Paul says, starting in verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Did you notice that Paul said three times when he gained Christ, when he received Christ, when he bowed to Christ, he lost confidence in everything else he held so dearly. But the loss Paul experienced was not like foreclosing on a home because you didn't have enough money and you somehow became hungry and homeless or going out of business and selling yourself into some kind of inhumane slavery. No, the loss he experienced was more of a sweet exchange. A much better investment was now made in exchange for something he thought was great, for something that was far superior. He says in verse 8, here's kind of the meat verse of the passage. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
knowing Christ. It is the highest calling and sweetest pursuit you could ever have. What did Brad read earlier from Jeremiah 9? Don't boast in your wisdom. Don't boast in your riches. Don't boast in your might. All those things crumble. Boast in this, that you know the Lord, that you know Christ. Why was knowing Christ of greater value, though? Why was knowing Christ greater value than putting his confidence in religious pride, narcissistic nationalism, or perfectionistic moralism? Here's why. Because Christ's humble life was poured out for our everlasting benefit. Because Christ's perfect life provided the righteousness we would need to stand before God. That's verse 9. Because Christ's sacrificial death atoned for our sins against our holy God. Because Christ's resurrection and his ascension, it secured our eternal destiny and our glorious inheritance that awaits us. Because Christ's indwelling spirit now empowers us to treasure Christ and become more like him, even if suffering and death await us. Brothers and sisters, we never become more like Jesus than when we are trusting in our Heavenly Father in the times of suffering and loss. That's what verse 10 is really all about. You see, Christianity is not just merely a head knowledge, an ancient book that collects dust that your grandma used to adhere to around Thanksgiving. No. Christianity is a supernatural encounter with the living God. Christianity is an intimate, personal knowledge with the one who died for you and was raised for you and one day will come back for you. And Paul says it's in times of suffering and loss that we know our Jesus even better. An old hymn written back in the 1600s once penned these similar words, The world seeks after wealth and all that mammon offers, yet never is content, though gold should fill its coffers. I have a higher good, content with it I'll be. My Jesus is my wealth. What is the world to me? The world is sorely grieved whenever it is slighted or when its hollow fame and honor have been blighted. Christ, thy reproach I bear, long as it pleadeth thee. I'm honored by my Lord. What is the world to me? The world with wanton pride exalts its sinful pleasures and for them foolishly gives up the heavenly treasures. Let others love the world with all its vanity. I love the Lord my God. What is the world to me? When Jesus was on that road towards his impending death, Jesus had one of his final conversations before the upper room. And he had a conversation with them, a little bit of a business lesson, a little financial planning, an exchange of values was talked about. He told his disciples that I think Paul was hearkening back to in Philippians, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and, offer, and be raised three days again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? What is it that you're putting 
your confidence in today to save your soul from your sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use what was preached today to remind us of what treasure we have in Christ. I pray that we would also be convicted of our self-righteousness and pride, realizing those things are not strong enough to be our confidence. And Father, I do pray as we close that we would sing with confidence that Jesus really has paid it all. It's in his name we pray. Amen.